Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics podcast. This week, I have some special guests joining me. I have uh, Dr. Connor Meehan, who is a lecturer in molecular microbiology at the University of Bradford. He specializes in whole genome sequencing and molecular epidemiology of pathogens, primarily mycobacterium tuberculosis and genome-based bacterial taxonomy. He says the programming language he's always wanted to learn properly, properly is R. And also joining me today is Dr. Leo Martins, who is head of phylogenomics at the Quadrum Institute Bioscience. He enjoys developing and implementing tree-based models. So he has a bunch of tools like BioMC squared, Gnomu, uh, TreeSignal, and we'll have links for those packages in the show notes. He recently moved to working with bacteria. Previously, he worked with viruses, eukaryotes, but from a modeling and theoretical perspective. He says he should have learned uh, OpenCL by now, and next year he wants to write something in C++. Good day to you, gentlemen. Nice, hey, to, have you on, nice to have you on the show. So, today, so today's episode, uh, we were going to talk about phylogenetics. I think both of you are expert arborists. <laughs> yeah, supposedly. Three huggers. So we'll start, off with, we'll start off with a softball question for both of you. Uh, Connor, who are you and what do you do? That's more, probably more of a difficult question. So what, I do a little it? bit of everything. My, I, I've always worked on pathogens of some kind. So I started off with HIV and then moved into human microbiomes, lateral gene transfer a little bit more, and now into um, mycobacteria. But it's always been based around phylogenetics. So in HIV, that was small transmission trees, microbiomes. It was actually lateral gene transfer and started taxonomy. And now doing a lot of tuberculosis. Um, mycobacterium ulcerans as well and other things, a lot of Bayesian reconstructions and heavy use of a lot of phylogenetics programs. Okay, and what about you, Leo? So, yeah, I'm a bioinformatician here at the Quadrum Institute of Bioscience. And uh, what I'm doing ex right now uh, is uh, to provide service and research. So on one hand, I install software, I run analysis for other researchers at the Institute, especially when they involve uh, some sort of phylogenetic inference. And at the same time, I also design and implement new software when I see there might be a gap in current landscape or it will help future research by the community. And uh, so through my background, I'm a Bayesian uh, phylogeneticist. So I, I, I develop uh, usually Bayesian models for complex uh, phylogenetic models like a recombination and a species tree inference on the phylogenomics uh, context. So it's clear both of you have some excellent credentials when it comes to phylogenetic reconstruction. And I'm assuming between the two of you, you both must have used every single program out there. And I was curious, we have a basic I have a basic assumption that different data or different data sets require different approaches. Maybe they don't. Do you both agree at least with that sentiment? Yes. 
Mostly yes. Okay. <laughs> Mostly yes. Would you like to clarify? I mean, a lot of the reasons for using something like parsimony or distance-based approaches have gone away. I would say. So a lot of it now comes down to, in terms of the phylogenetic approach, something within a maximum likelihood framework, or even better, a Bayesian framework. So I think as we go along and along, you'll start seeing the simpler methods drop off, and most of the data will go through some form or some different aspect of one of maximum likelihood or Bayesian. And is this simply because it's easy, it's more feasible to compute using those more comprehensive methods, or is there a fundamental change in the in the theory or, or what's the difference why are we making that shift i would say a little bit of both so about 10 15 years ago you would have had to have a computer that was used to run your maximum likelihood tree and you would leave it for days for maybe 20 to 30 taxa but that's not the case anymore so back then parsimony and neighbor joining were done so that you could actually get some results within your year but now as the computers get much, much faster and the code is streamlined a lot by some excellent programmers, maximum likelihood and Bayesian can be used on much larger data sets and more comprehensive models of evolution. And what about... Mm, but I, yeah, I understand. Yes, I'm a, so I'm a bit Bayes, biased because I'm Bayesian. But uh, I think that uh, whenever you increase the capacity of the computers, people come up with more data and more complex models. So I don't know. I think we still have uh, we still have space for parsimony or for distance methods. So although although I'm not an expert on them, I would say so. For instance, if you have uh, for a short time frame, you know, an outbreak, or if you have if you're looking at subspecies clonal complexes, can't you just say because in these cases, you know, if you're using SNPs, you assume that you don't have uh, back substitutions, you don't have anything weird going on there. So every you know substitution that happened in the population is present in your sequences. In these cases, can't you use parsimony or, or distance? I have the impression that it might be complicated we might, um, to use Bayesian models for everything. And I, and I think people are, I think there's a renaissance of, of this, you know, quick and dirty methods. Yeah, I will say often when I'm talking to people who want some help with molecular epidemiology, like these kind of outbreaks, mm -hmm. the first question always is, why are you building a tree? And a lot of the times people are building a tree because that's what they think is required to go into their papers and they don't always mm -hmm. need that. So for an outbreak, okay. it can just be, yes, a, a quick build a, a SNP matrix and then just have some, some cutoffs to say these things are closer than these other things. And in that case, exactly, a parsimony or a distance approach is fine because it's just coming from a, a matrix of some kind. As a quick background to why we, sometimes we use maximum likelihood and Bayesian for people may not know, it's to model multiple substitutions happening at the same column or, mm -hmm, or yeah. in an alignment. Like Leo said, if it's a very short time span and it's um, in a small population, the likelihood of multiple mutations having occurred that you did not observe is so low that a parsimony mm -hmm, or a distance yeah. matrix is fine. Um, probably will get you the same answer as a maximum likelihood. Yeah, no, no yeah, yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. I think on short time frames, when people want to work on an outbreak, they want mm -hmm. to look at transmission clustering, and there mm -hmm. you have to maybe start moving into some of these Bayesian approaches, which mm -hmm. are trying to turn a phylogenetic tree into a transmission tree, like mm -hmm. Outbreaker or Transphylo, which are trying mm -hmm. to estimate how many events you may have missed. 
So, as with everything, the answer is always yes and or no <laughs> at the same time. I was hoping even if we were talking very short, uh, focused timeframes like outbreaks, we could get some sort of consensus what it looks like. It's really, you know, the standard thing that anyone tells you. It's down to the question you're asking, what's appropriate, what's your data doing, what do you, how deeply mm -hmm. do you want to model this and how, how important is it to establish that uh, line of succession in your data. Well, if you, um, want, if you were working on viruses and you have a small outbreak in a hospital, you look at um, the MRSA paper that Simon Harris did years ago, which has kind of set that out, you can then just do a, a distance-based or a parsimony tree because all you want to know is whether they are related to each other or not. Mm -hmm. and, and then it's just about the topology of the tree and then they're probably fine. It's mm -hmm. about if you want to do something with that tree as in look at clustering on that tree or look at the branch lengths and know times of when did this okay, transmission yeah. occur and all that, that's when you got to go to the more complex things. Yeah, yeah I, think I, yeah, I think I agree with you. When you want to use trees seriously, you shouldn't rely on, on parsimony or distance. You want to have something that you, that you can trust upon, right? Yeah, I think yeah. I can yeah, I yeah. agree with okay. that as well. <laughs> I, I, I myself am quite fond of doing a first pass uh, NJ tree, no matter what size the, mm -hmm. the data set, just to get an idea and make sure that it's sane. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but I always keep that caveat or that this is not really robust and you need to. Yeah, go back they, they, they're else. still a, a very nice algorithmic trick, right? So you can use that as a starting point for doing something. Even IQ3 or XML, I bet they use some distance based uh, methods just to have a, a first pass on, the, on your data. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people forget that. that all maximum likelihood approaches often start with a parsimony or a distance tree, mm -hmm. and they refine that within RaxML or IQ tree or PhiML to get mm -hmm. to something better from there. But you have to have something to start with. Well, all right, guys, let's go deeper. <laughs> <laughs> what does, does, does your advice or does the type of tools you would use change when we start thinking about looking at an entire clonal complex or sub within a subspecies, not necessarily species level, it might be species level if it's a very uh, monoclonal uh, species, but uh, just sort of within a species, but not just an outbreak, you're going a bit broader. What would you recommend uh, as the approach there? Does it change compared to these shorter timeframes we've been talking about? So I would say a lot of my work recently has gone away from using phylogenetics and focusing on the data that you're going to put in to build that tree, because uh, it just tends to be a bit more of a mess when you do go to whole genomes or whole species level. There, the maximum likelihood approaches tend to work quite well. Again, I'm a big RaxML NG fan. Other people use <laughs> IQ tree a lot, and there's a big discussion about which one is better. In my opinion, neither is better. They're both quite um, robust at doing anything at that level. Then it's about what data you're going to put in there. And normally you're going to put in something like a core genome that you've created with Rory or there's a program called Progenomics, which also will create these core genomes. And then you want to build a, a tree of some kind from there, normally a maximum likelihood, if you just want to know the relationships between these things in there. Well, I know Leo is a massive IQ tree fan. So <laughs> any comments from you? Well, I use IQ tree because it's very easy to use. So I think it's, uh, and it's quick. I've used RexML in the past, but I remember for some data set it gave me, you know, it was taking too long. It was taking longer than I used to with IQ3, and then I went back to IQ3. But I think so most I, of them, I did it both the of other them way. are fine. I did it the other way around, because with RexML, 
I was using that for years. Everyone was like, why aren't you using IQ tree? That's mm-hmm. where it's at right now. And I tried to do this huge complex based tree and IQ tree was like estimating that it was going to take me about two months. Mm-hmm. Rexamel mm-hmm. NG. Yeah. So the new version of Rexamel is much, much faster at these large trees. But uh, IQ tree definitely is more comprehensive in a lot of the things it can do, especially picking that model for you and running it all and doing the bootstraps. And it's definitely a great program. I'm mm-hmm. contemplating going back to IQ tree. So these more diverse data sets, Leo, do you agree with, with Connor that essentially it's less about the, the program using it and it's very dependent on the input? On the data, yes. Yes, absolutely. I think for, yeah, and I think this is going to be more of an issue in the in the future. So for people who don't know, what constitutes bad, like if it's so important, what, what constitutes bad data or good data? Uh, data that was too pick, hand-picked. So that's so good. If, if, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. So some people call this. So this can be a selection bias, or it can be gene shopping. So gene shopping is when you when you want to answer a problem, and uh, so for instance, if you want to do time uh, divergence time estimation, and so you need genes that let's say are constitutive genes. So you uh, not genes that are under weird uh, selective uh, scenarios. Nearly neutral. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so and so you this is what they call gene shopping. So you you go in your genome. And and you find the genes that are the best to answer your question. But then there's the, you know, there's the, the evil twin side of this, which is uh, selection bias. So maybe you can you choose the genes that you have more data available, or the genes that are easier to detect in more genomes, or the genes that you only have in single copy, because then you don't need to handle paralogy. And so if you, because fiddling, by the way, I'm talking this not only about microbes, but uh, in, in general, because you have a lot of uh, long-going discussions on, on parts of the tree of life that are, uh, when you look at it, it boils down to which genes are you taking, which species are you taking, uh, because it becomes a matter of do you optimize the, the noise-to-signal ratio. So, you know, by selecting the genes that are m- more present in more species, then you might be actually selecting one kind one kind of signal there, and you miss all the, all the rest. So, you know, from this, from this standpoint, I think choosing the, the, the genes and choosing the data and how do you throw away your samples and what, how do you choose which samples to analyze? And then if you have a lot of data, I think people sometimes, they uh, they first do a clustering and then they remove the sequences that are very similar and then they work with the other ones. But, you know, what if you're inducing some bias there? Connor, any comment from you? Yeah, it's data selection is a real big problem with these kind of things. So there's become a huge trend of taking the core genome and then you have all of those, those genes that are present in every species that you're looking at or every isolate you're looking at and then concatenating that all together into what's called a super alignment and then building a tree from that. And a difficulty is, especially with bacteria, is um, lateral or horizontal gene transfer. And you're assuming that everything in the core genome was vertically inherited and not horizontally uh, inherited in what's called orthologous replacement, where the bacteria has a copy of that gene and just replaces it through lateral gene transfer with a copy from another bacteria. And these individual, if all the individual genes that you've concatenated together don't all have the same signal, you can get really weird trees and maximum likelihood can have real problems with incongruent data inside of the same alignment. Understanding what data you're putting in can be quite difficult. So if you take, for example, 16S, everybody uses 16S, and they say that it's the best marker to use, and it's fine in some ways, but some bacteria have four copies of 16 four or more copies of 16S, and they are not all identical. And which one of these do you choose? Some of them have gotten 16S through horizontal gene transfer. Which one of these do you use? So paralogs and orthologs and putting all that in 
it's a lot more work than people probably think it is. Much of what we're talking about essentially extends across all life. From, from the sounds of it, from our discussion, that the, the short time frame within an outbreak, it's sort of dependent exactly on your question, what you're going to do. But as you get wider away, it's more your, your input data is vitally important, more so than probably picking between Raxamel or, or IQ tree. Yeah, that, that's, I don't think that's, um, that's the bit we talk about the most, but that's not the bit that we work on the most, for sure. <laughs> I always say with, with, with phylogenetics, you'll always get a tree. Every program will create a tree. It's not like you'll get an error and it says nothing can come out at the end. Yeah. No, you get a star so, sometimes. Yeah, you get a star, but that's still a tree, technically. It's acyclic, technically. <laughs> it's about knowing actually a lot of the skills that go on top of that, of how to check how good that tree is in terms of does all the data support it with something like a bootstrap or better in a Bayesian framework. Leo, you want to chip in? Name Bayesian that. framework. Yeah, no, actually, I'm, 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 very, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy to hear Kono saying this, that you can get a tree out of anything. So, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Any any set of sequences, even if they are random, if they, even if they don't have common ancestry, uh, you know, completely random sequences. Once you align them, you have signal there that uh, the tree inference procedures will pick up and they will tell you, well, this is the tree. And so it's, and it's very hard to, sometimes, sometimes it's easy, you know, if you just take random uh, sequences, probably your tree will have very large branch lengths. But still, they're going to be finite because the software assumed that you should have finite branch lengths there. But anyway, uh, so the, the, I think that's the, that's the big question, right? So, so does, does the tree make sense? So if, okay, well, let's carry on from that to both of you. I put the question, let's take a hypothetical, a, a colleague or a student or someone comes to you very excited with, with a picture of, mm -hmm. a, of a phylogram and they ask you how, oh, look at this tree, isn't this great? What are the things you're looking, what are you critical of, or what are you looking for to make sure that that tree mm. looks good, is believable, uh, in line of what we're talking about? And you can say you need to look at what, and if you need to go back to primary data, what aspects of the primary data are yeah, you worried would, about? So I think the first thing that I would do is I would go back to primary data, or I, I would ask uh, how many different models did you use, how many different algorithms did you use to get to this tree? So I think that's the, and, uh, and, Maybe take a look at the alignment, you know, ask uh, what if you invert some of these sequences, will you have the same alignment? So actually there's a test called head and tails to see if the alignment is good or not. Is uh, So I think you invert all the sequences or because, you know, the alignment sometimes it can, de it depends on the order in which it starts aligning and in the order that you put the sequences there. So, so first, th first thing was, would be to check the alignment to see if there's a lot of gaps in those. And so which, uh, yes, uh, so which part are you reversing? Are you reversing the order? Like so, you can, so you can invert the order in which the sequences are added, but you can also invert the whole, the whole genome, the whole alignment. So what's in, you know, what the, the, what's the rightmost will become leftmost. So if you invert completely and then you align again, and you have, and then you invert again at the end, and then you have a different alignment from the from what you start with. Uh, this means that you know the alignment is doing something there that is that was not on the data. So the alignment is forcing some some things there. That's that's a really good tip, Connor. Any any tips from you? What are you worried about? What do you look for? Yeah, alignment is is so important when it comes to phylogenetics. And I would also say again comes back to the question I always ask of why are you building the tree. So if it's to look at the relationships between the isolates within the same species, then a, different data sources can give you different trees. So you build a 16S tree, and then you build a multi-locus sequence type tree, and then you build a whole genome-based tree. And these might all be different from each other. If they're all exactly the same, 
then you've probably robustly means that there's a strong signal for whatever this one tree is. If they're all different, that doesn't mean that any of them are wrong. It could actually mm -hmm. be that it's just a different signal. And then it comes back to the question of what are you trying to prove with this tree? Are you trying to say that these isolates evolved from a common ancestor with each other? Then it's trying to find exactly and make sure that each individual gene that you put into that alignment doesn't suffer from a combination or lateral gene transfer or all this kind of thing. So it's for me, I'm then trying to I want to prod at the tree as much as I can to see if it breaks. There's just one thing yeah. uh, before we finish that I think this is part of a standard answer is uh, look at the bootstraps. Yeah. So, you know, look at the confidence, the confidence interval, or if you're working Bayesian, you can look at the posterior distribution of trees to see. I think that's a, that's what you're hinting on, right, Connor? Sorry. You. Yeah, I would say if, if you are good at doing Bayesian or you're not good at doing Bayesian, find someone who is good and build a really <laughs> good Bayesian tree. And I definitely would be more, if that had been tested properly to make sure the priors were all correct and that your mm -hmm. models going in were all correct, I'm, I'm more inclined to quote unquote believe that tree. So my last question for this session is, is there any really stupid mistakes that people can sanity check when they when they look at a phylogeny? So a couple of ones that uh, I've run into is someone shows me a tree and all of the it's meant to be a maximum likelihood tree generated, you know, very mm -hmm. vigorously produced, but all of the branch lengths are the same. Uh -huh. It's essentially mm -hmm. a cladogram or part of the tree looks like a cladogram. Uh, another one is, as Leo mentioned before, certain taxa have exceedingly long branch lengths that don't make any sense. So is there any other things like that when you look at a figure and you just go, okay, that's just wrong. Something has happened. For me, it's where the bio of bioinformatician comes in. It's about knowing what you're working on. So for me, when I'm working on tuberculosis, I normally have a fair idea of where certain, I know the what lineages should be beside what lineages and what subspecies should be clustering with what subspecies and if they're not doing that then something has definitely gone wrong and you see that quite a lot the branch lengths if someone's using snip data and they haven't done an ascertainment bias correction or introduced constant sites the branch lengths would be wrong so look at that branch scale and if you're like wait this is a species level and there's tiny branches something has gone wrong there you've cut out a lot of the data maybe by mistake or something I'm happy to hear that because that's usually the first thing that I that I <laughs> that I search for in a tree is the branch lengths. So if I see a lot of uh, zero or, you know, on the limit of zero, because sometimes the software doesn't give exactly zero, but it's mm. going to give you 10 to the minus six or something. So if you see this uh, limit epsilon like uh, branch lengths, and then I know that something it, it might not be wrong, but I would look at the, the data again. All right. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you both. That's all the time for we have Thank for you. this session. Maybe we'll have you back on for another episode. I don't know. <laughs> but this is so this is uh, Nabil with Connor and Leo signing off from the Microbial Bioinformatics podcast. Thank you. Thank you for Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. <laughs>